We'll get to that in a little bit. But uh, primarily, Jesus is rejecting the traditions of the Pharisees and their practices. Now, we've got to make a distinction between uh, the traditions that they have established, the commentaries uh, that rabbis have, have passed down through the ages, and the actual law of Moses. We don't, we don't ever see Jesus rejecting the law of Moses. We don't ever see him breaking it. We don't ever see him uh, contradicting it in any way. What we do see him contradicting and rejecting are these traditions that have been established since then. Okay? A lot of commentaries, a lot of commentaries on the commentaries were established all through the ages. And so by the time we get to, to this time period here, they have elevated these commentaries and these traditions way above Scripture. That's what they were adhering to, and, and the actual law of Moses was kind of relegated somewhere else. That's what Jesus is coming against. And six times we see Jesus uh, presenting what the Pharisees and teachers of the law were saying to the people, and six times we see him uh, contrasting those teachings with the true intent of the law of Moses. God's true intention in giving the law. He demonstrates clearly with the following examples that we're about to go through, that the highest form of righteousness under the law, again, would not be enough to gain entrance into God's kingdom. The highest righteousness under the law would not be enough. It would require something greater. The examples Jesus gives are not general spiritual principles, but he pulls specific examples taken out of the law of Moses. The first example has to do with murder. Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26 says this, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that, that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift." Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. All right. He starts this off by uh, speaking about thou shalt not kill. Exodus 20 and 13 is the commandment, thou shalt not kill. Or, more specifically, thou shalt not murder. The Pharisees' position was that murder consisted of taking someone's life, <clears throat> the act itself. And we're going to see this a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. The Pharisees were focused on the action itself. Jesus was focused on the intentions, the, the, the inner, uh, the spiritual aspects that led up to that action. The action is just the end result. The cause is something else. And that's what Jesus wants us to focus on. 
James 1, 14 and 15 says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So this is what Jesus is trying to get across. It's not the act itself that, that he's so concerned with. That's what we're concerned with. But he wants to nip it in the bud at the very beginning. It's kind of like, you know, people get cancer, people get sicknesses. A lot of times, those things are caused by other things. Preventable things. A very obvious example is uh, scurvy. It's just a vitamin C deficiency. And so, we can try to treat the scurvy. We can give a medicine to, to squash some of the symptoms of it. Or we can just give them some vitamin C. And that takes care of everything. And so, what Jesus is saying is, the sin, the action itself, is not what needs to be treated. That's the symptom. The cause is the underlying spiritual, the hatred, the envy, something in here. That's what needs to be dealt with. Being angry at someone without a cause puts us on a very slippery path. Raka, meaning empty head or vain person, you're thinking about someone or talking to someone using hurtful words and insults. You ever done that? I have. <clears throat> and of course, in our case, it's always justified. It's uh, righteous indignation, however you want to call it. Jesus calls it something else. <clears throat> when we become angry with someone, we're in a very precarious spot at that point. If it's allowed to continue, Jesus says the person is in danger of losing his salvation. That's a pretty heavy statement. In the case of Cain, if we look at that as a, as a case study, he became angry with his brother. And that led to murder. That is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. The murder itself isn't the issue. That's the result. That's the, that's the symptom. Anger, hatred, that's the problem. That's what needs to be addressed before it becomes something else. If you have something against someone else, your gifts to God and your service to the Lord are meaningless. If you look at 1 Corinthians 13, Paul mentions this several times. If I have faith to move mountains, if, if, I'm, if I'm this, if I'm that, and have not love, I'm nothing. It's nothing. It's meaningless.
And if we continue to harbor anger and hatred towards someone, again, getting back to unforgiveness, not only will you be completely useless in the kingdom of God, you will be cast into prison until you've completely paid for all of your sins. Now, it is okay to be angry at some things. Ephesians 4.26 says, Be ye angry and sin not. What are we to be angry about? Did you know God gets angry? He does, doesn't he? Put it the right things. He wouldn't get angry if someone cuts him off on the highway. We do. Did you know that guy probably has no idea what he did? You're getting all worked up. Your whole day is ruined, and this guy has no clue. He doesn't even know you're there. That would probably make you even more frustrated. That's not something we should be getting angry about. There are much more important things going on in the world that we ought to be getting angry about. Our cultural issues. Those are things we ought to be getting angry about. The arrogance of the enemy are things we ought to be getting angry about. Not stuff happening to me. Not that I got passed over with a promotion. Not that I just hit my thumb with the hammer. Although, that's feels good afterward. <laughs> when the hammer stops hitting me. <clears throat> There are things that cause us to get angry that ought not cause us to get angry. There are things that we should be angry at that don't move us at all. We need to get that flipped around. We need to become Christ-like. The second and third example that Jesus gives has to do with adultery and divorce. Matthew 5, 27 and 32 says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, that applies to, to uh, women as well, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Now, Exodus 20.14 says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's the commandment about adultery. Deuteronomy 24.1 speaks about a, a writ of divorcement. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him get, write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. Now again, the Pharisee's position was only concerned with the outward act, the physical breakup, the separation. Jesus, again, was concerned about the lustful thoughts and desires. 
That's the problem. That's the root cause. Lust. Desire. Jesus teaches that we need to remove whatever is causing us to think or feel this way, no matter how much we love it, no matter how close it is to us. Cut it off and cast it away. There are things, there are secret things that Christians deal with. Maybe not in this room, but overall, there are most certainly secret sins. There are secret pleasures, desires that that Christians have, they struggle with. They don't want them. But they struggle with them. And it's these things that we need to get rid of. That we need to allow God to give us victory over. God is explaining to us that these desires, obviously they won't help. They can only hurt. They can only hurt. And I don't care how spiritual you are. Let me... let me to speak on this for a moment. I don't care how spiritual you are or how close to God you are. We're always going to be struggling with sin. We're still wrapped up in this. Fallen flesh. We're still surrounded by a world system that's dedicated to driving us away from God. We still have an enemy, a spiritual enemy, that's going to do everything he can to get us to slip up and fall. And after we do, he's going to accuse us of it. So we've got all of these things working against us. We are going to struggle from time to time against sin. Okay, that in itself is not wrong. One preacher said it's it's okay to let a bird fly over your head, but it's your fault if you let him build a nest in your hair. In other words, temptation is not sin. Succumbing to the temptation, that's sin. Jesus himself was tempted, yet without sin. When we're tempted, we need to use the tools at our disposal to resist temptation. When we do succumb to it, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. So ultimately, Jesus is explaining to us and reminding us our old natures need to be continually crucified. Paul said, I die daily. And it's those times, at least for me, when I'm feeling particularly good, when I'm feeling especially spiritual and close to God, that's when I'm in the most danger. That's when I'm feeling like I can get away with a few things. I'm I'm pretty good right now. Don't let yourself buy into that lie. Don't do it. That's when he's going to get you. He ought not ever get you. We need to be getting him. Among the Jews, there were two schools of thought concerning divorce. One taught that a writ of divorcement could be issued by the husband for any reason whatsoever. I don't like the way her feet look. I don't like that she snores at night. Take a hike. The other 
Todd, a writ of divorcement could be issued by the husband only for a major offense. Jesus tells us that marriage was supposed to be a permanent institution that should never be broke. That was his original intention for it. Again, the covenant of marriage was designed to reflect his covenant with his people. We are called his bride. He is the husband. That is how it was supposed to be from the very beginning. Now, of course, it's not like that, is it? Our society has made it extremely easy to take care of that problem, as they refer to it. Jesus does give one exception to that, and that's in the case of fornication. If a, if a member is unfaithful, that's grounds for divorce, because they have broken covenant. But it was never his intention for that to happen. God's desire for his church, God's desire uh, as far as a relationship with us, is that we have a covenant that will never be broke. God will always remain faithful to us. We will always remain faithful to him. Now again, that's not always the case, is it? God will always remain faithful to us. We do not always remain faithful to him. But in this case, Jesus is always ready to bring us back into covenant. The fourth, has, the fourth example Jesus gives has to do with oaths. Matthew 5, 33-37 says again, You have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. You happen to have them. But let your communication be, yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Deuteronomy 23 and 21 says, When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it. For the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, and it would be sin in thee. Now the Pharisees were notorious for their oaths. They were known for them. They, they, they swore things all the time. And for any reason whatsoever, they'd bind it with an oath. I don't know why. <clears throat> Maybe it made it seem more official or, or regal or whatever. But they would always, whatever they said, they'd bind it with an oath. Now of course... If they wanted to get out of the oath, <clears throat> all they'd have to do is say, well, I didn't swear by the Lord. So it's, it's, not, it's not binding. And that's what they would do. Jesus is saying that you, you shouldn't need to swear at all. Your word should be your bond. If you say something, that's the way it is. When you tell someone that you're going to do something, you have just made, according to the word of God, you have covenanted with them that you are going to do that. That is a covenant that you have made. If I say I'm going to do something, I have covenanted with someone that I am going to do that. 
I have not made a contract that I can find fine-tune my way and, and fine-print my way out of. I have made a covenant with that person upon pain of death. That's what a covenant is. If I say I'm going to be there and I'm not there, it better be because I died. That's the only way out. That's what Jesus is saying. <clears throat> Let our yea be yea and our nay, nay. If we say we're going to do something, have a care. Weigh it out. Don't just say stuff willy-nilly. And then, well, it didn't work out, so I couldn't be there. Sorry. We do that. But we ought not do that. Our word ought to be our bond. If we don't think we can be there, we should say either no or I'm not sure. Let me check and get back with you. Something along those lines. But don't just say yes willy-nilly. I know, I know it's hard to say no. Some people have a, a, a big problem saying no. I get that. I used to be like that. But sometimes no is so much easier. <laughs> you only got so much time in the day, right? You can't you can't do everything. So anyway, that's probably another message. If you say something, do it. Amen. The fifth has to do with the law of retaliation. Matthew 5, 38 through 42 says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn thou not away. Wow. Okay. Exodus 21, verses 23 through 25 says this. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, at first reading of this, a lot of people come to the conclusion that this is harsh. This is... A little extreme. But in reality, this law was given simply to protect the innocent and also to make sure that the punishment would always fit the crime. It kind of takes the emotion out of it. If you stole something, you return it. You repair any damages. If you murdered someone, you're going to lose your life. Whatever you did is going to be done unto you. If you swore against a, someone falsely as a witness, that thing that you wanted done unto them is going to be done unto you. No more and no less. It was righteous judgment. Jesus teaches us, however, that a righteous person, as defined under the new covenant, is a person of humility, selflessness, and love. In other words... Instead of retaliating, instead of claiming their rights under the law, 
instead of seeking justice for what was done to me, they're going to instead demonstrate love and compassion toward them. They'll commit their case to God, who is the righteous judge, and leave it at that. Did you know that life is not fair? Who, who knows that? couple, all right. The rest will figure it out eventually. <laughs> life is not fair. In some things, bad things happen to God's people. It happens. Sometimes those things happen because we did something dumb. Other times those things happen because of no reason at all. They just happen. In those times, we are to commit our case to God. This is difficult to do. Again, it's one of those things that preaches well, sounds spiritual, really hard to apply. Really hard to apply. But Jesus is telling us that those that are in his kingdom are going to operate this way. Did you also know that one day God is going to sort everything out? He is not going to leave anything unsorted. He is going to judge righteous judgment. And he is going to make everything right one day. Possibly not here. It is possible that we will go to our graves unavenged. But that's okay. Because that's not the end of the story, is it? That's just the beginning. At the end, God will sort everything out and he will make everything right. This whole government thing that's going on right now, it frustrates me. It frustrates me because I know what America could have been. I know what we could have been under God. And that, that's disappointing. That's, that saddens me. But I know that one day Jesus is going to be reigning here on earth worldwide. We'll have a perfect government. I'm looking forward to that. Until then, it's probably going to fall completely apart. And I'll just buckle in and get ready for a ride. But at the end of it all, God's going to take care of everything. And we're going to end up with a perfect government and a perfect judge and a perfect ruler. And things are going to be great forever. So in the meantime, we can trust the Lord and we can commit our cause to Him. Again, it's not easy to do. You will feel wronged. You will feel perfectly right in claiming justice. And here's something about justice. That's one thing I don't want from God. I want all kinds of things from Him, but justice is not one of them. Because if I get justice, I have no hope. 
What I'm asking for is mercy, not justice. And so I'm not going to ask for justice when it comes to someone else either. I'll ask mercy there as well. The sixth and final example Jesus gives has to do with love. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48 says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now he's referring to a scripture in Leviticus 19.18 that says this, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. The law here emphasizes their own people. The Pharisees taught, love your fellow Israelites and hate your enemies. Hate the enemies of Israel. They do err, not knowing the scriptures. God in both the Old and the New Covenant makes a distinction between his covenant people and the world around them. He has always made that distinction from the time of Abraham up until this present moment. There is is a distinction between God's people and everyone else. In the Old Testament, God's enemies were physical. God's enemies were the nations around them. Those nations that abhorred the laws of God. Those nations that fought against his people. That was the enemy in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have another enemy. A spiritual. People are no longer the enemy. People are no longer who we war against. We don't war against flesh and blood, do we? but against spiritual forces. Under the new covenant, that is who we are to hate. That is who we are to war against. Not people. Spiritual forces. Devils. Demons. Spiritual wickedness in high places. That is our enemy today. Jesus teaches that we should demonstrate love to all human beings because all people now would be granted access to the new covenant. God spilled his blood for the entire world, not just you and me. He spilled his blood for everybody, including our enemies. Devils, demons, spiritual enemies, those are who we need to hate. Those who are who we need to fight against. 
And Jesus likens the Pharisees here to publicans, saying that they are no better than them in this area. Ow. That was a, that was a slam. That was a serious slam that Jesus uh, threw down there. Calling the Pharisees the highest righteousness under the law, the spiritual leaders of the people, the examples, likening them to tax collectors, Gentiles. Ouch. We see in Scripture that God, Jesus, He has a lot of mercy and a lot of patience toward the common man. Against the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, not so much. The Pharisees ought to have known better. It is a spiritual principle found in Scripture that the more knowledge you're given, the more responsibility and authority you're given, the higher standard he's going to hold you to. Again, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, they didn't stop failing God from the time they left Egypt all the way till the time they crossed the River Jordan. But they were allowed to go over. Moses made one mistake, and he was forbad. He, God forbade him to go over. That one mistake, that was it. Why? Because he ought to have known better. He had a much closer relationship with God. He had the knowledge of Scripture. He had the knowledge of, of, of the law. He had an intimate, personal, face-to-face relationship with God. He had the authority over all of God's people. So he was held to a much higher standard. God will hold his people to a higher standard than he will hold people outside. People outside of God's covenant. He's very merciful and gracious to them. He's merciful and gracious to us. But he holds us to a higher standard because he's given us so much more. Responsibilities that he has given us, we need to take seriously. Responsibility for handling the Word of God. Responsibility for being an effectual witness. Responsibility for teaching the Word of God. For ministering to people's needs. For demonstrating Jesus to this world. We have a responsibility to do these things. We ought not take that responsibility for granted. Because with that responsibility also comes a measure of authority. God doesn't give one or the other. If he gives us any responsibility at all, he gives us the authority to take care of it. Amen. He gives you the authority to teach Scripture. He gives you the authority to do war in his behalf. He gives you the authority to minister to others' needs. Because he's given us the responsibility. Jesus concludes this part of, of the Sermon on the Mount by commanding us to be perfect. 
even as our Father which is in heaven is perfect. Again, he's demonstrating that he himself is the standard of righteousness. Not the Pharisees, not any other person. He is. He's the standard of righteousness. He is who we have to attain to. God will not and does not lower his standards to accommodate sinful man. He won't. When we read the the example of the rich young ruler coming to Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Well, you got to do this, got to do this. I'm doing all those. Okay, one thing thou lackest. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. That he wasn't able to do. Jesus didn't make an exception. Scripture says that he loved that man. He loved that rich young ruler. But he let him walk away. Why? Because he's not going to lower his standards. That's the standard. He doesn't make exceptions for you, me, or anyone else. He doesn't have to. He's God. What he does do is gives us the power and the ability and the desire to live up to those standards. Amen. That's the difference. I would much rather he set a high standard and help me attain that than compromise somewhere in the middle and leave me there. I don't want to stay where I'm at. I want to attain to his level of righteousness. I want to be Christ-like. Amen. Let's all stand. Jesus, you're a wonderful Savior. I'm so thankful for the Word of God. I'm so 